Hey, Prime members, you can binge eight new episodes of the Mr. Ballin podcast one month early and all episodes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Today's podcast features two classic scary stories. The audio from both of these stories has been pulled from our main YouTube channel and has been remastered for today's episode. The links to the original YouTube videos are in the description. The first story you'll hear is called Who Was Calling, and it's about a series of disturbing 911 phone calls that police dispatchers started receiving in Nevada. The second story you'll hear is called The Capitol Theater Haunting, and it's about three police officers who independently witnessed the same paranormal event in Utah. But before we get into those stories, if you're a fan of the strange, dark, and mysterious delivered in story format, then you've come to the right podcast because that's all we do, and we upload twice a week, once on Monday and once on Thursday. So if that's of interest to you, please put the Amazon Music follow button's feet in cement and then throw them in the ocean. Okay, let's get into our first story called Who Was Calling? Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Nine one one dispatchers hear a lot of interesting stories coming from the other end of the phone. But one group of dispatchers out of Reno, Nevada, may win the award for the creepiest 911 calls ever received. When the details of these calls they got were put online, the internet went crazy. Here is their story. There was this old couple that lived about 20 miles east of Reno, Nevada. In 2010, the husband dies, leaving the wife all alone in this house. Shortly after his passing, she began calling 911 two, three times a week, requesting things like, can you please put some water on to boil? Hey, can you change the thermostat? It was clear she was showing signs of dementia and the dispatchers were respectful of her and gently told her that this is 911, you can only call if it's an emergency. And at some point the woman would understand her mistake and she would say sorry and she would hang up. No first responders were ever sent out for these calls because it didn't seem like an emergency. It just seemed like a confused elderly person. But no matter how many times they told her, she kept calling back. And eventually her calls took a turn. Instead of calling 911 to ask for help with mundane tasks around the house, she would call 911 believing she was talking directly to her deceased husband, John. 
The dispatcher would pick up and the woman would say, John, where are you? John, John. By this time, the dispatchers had gotten so many calls from this woman, they would recognize her address coming through and they knew what to expect. They would answer the phone, they'd be respectful and they would tell her like they always did, this is 911, you can't call here, you need to talk to your family. And again, they did not send a responding unit out to her because it just seemed like she was confused, not in any danger. But one day when she called, she sounded frantic and scared. John, please come home, help me, I need help. John, come home. This time they would send first responders out to the woman's house. When the responding unit arrives at her house just minutes after she had placed the 911 call, they go to the door and they're knocking and they're yelling for her and she's not coming to the door and it's all quiet in the house. The door is unlocked, so they open it up and they announce themselves. They walk inside and immediately they can tell the heat is not on because it's very, very cold inside the house. They look around the first floor and they can't find her and there's no sign of a struggle or any obvious problems that could have happened inside of the house. So they go upstairs and they start searching all the rooms and no one's there until they get to the last room and it's the bedroom. They go inside and there's an older woman who's lying on the bed and she's clearly deceased and has been for several hours because rigor mortis had already set in. The police are able to confirm that the woman who's lying on the bed is the same woman who owns the house and lives there. And at this point, they call back to dispatch and they tell them, hey, you know, the woman that you claim made this 911 call, well, it can't have been her. Because based on rigor mortis, she was dead at the time that 911 call was made. But the dispatchers are like, no way. We know what she sounds like. We speak to her multiple times a week. We have a whole protocol built when we see her address come across because we speak to her so often. That 911 call that you got that led you to that house where she was, that call was made by her. What they ultimately decide is the reason for this discrepancy is she didn't have rigor mortis. She was just stiff because it was really cold inside of her house and that she had died in those couple of minutes between leaving the 911 call and when officers arrived. But in the back of everybody's minds, they're a little freaked out. A few days go by and another call is placed to 911 coming from that woman's home address. The dispatcher sees that and has to do a double take, like that's not possible. But they're thinking, okay, this could be a relative, it could be a friend, it could be anything. Picks up the phone and she's shocked when it's the same woman who is frantically yelling for John to come here, save me, help me, I need help. And the dispatcher who's well aware of the history and well aware that this woman's supposed to be dead, stays calm, goes through the procedure, tries to get more information from this woman, but the call ends abruptly and there's no more information to be had. And so not knowing what else to do, she asks a responding unit to go check this house out. The responding unit goes over to the property, they knock on the door, no one's inside, the door is actually still open, they go in, the house is empty, there's no one there, there's no one that could have made that call. At this point, dispatch is like, okay, this has gotta be a prank. But the next day, same thing happens. Here comes a call from the dead woman's house. They pick it up and it's this distraught woman yelling for help, I need my husband. And the dispatcher is trying to get more information, but they can't, and then the line cuts out. Once again, they have to send responders to this location because this woman has called 911 and is saying that she needs help. And once again, the officers get to the house and it's vacant. Just like when she was alive, these calls would persist multiple times a week. They continued even after her house was broken into and burned to the ground. There's not even a house anymore. And there are still calls coming through from that address to 911. 
Finally, the police get in touch with the phone company and they explain the situation and the phone company looks at their records and they say, actually, her phone line was disconnected almost immediately after she was deceased. But they tell police there's a chance that it might not have been disconnected properly at the site and that could be a reason why it's still working. So they send a lineman to go check out the actual property to confirm her lines were disconnected properly and that no wires were getting crossed. And he said, all of it checked out. Everything has been detached this whole time. The phone company thought perhaps there was a digital recording of her that got trapped in their system and was randomly bouncing to their call center. But the dispatchers would say, you know, it doesn't sound like a recording that's playing the same every single time. It's always the same message. She's yelling for her husband to come save her but the way she sounds is always different. It's a unique phone call every single time. So because there wasn't a definitive explanation for why this was happening, they had to treat each call like it was serious. And so multiple times a week for a year, they received these ghost calls and had to send out responding officers to check on her, even though the house was gone and there was nothing there and there was never anyone there. It was just a vacant lot. And then finally, a year after this woman has died, the calls just abruptly stopped. And the police did not launch an investigation into what it was, because the reality is police need to prioritize things that are threats to people or places. And this really wasn't either of those things. It was just really bizarre. And so the official explanation for how a dead woman could be calling 911 from a non-existent phone line in a non-existent house for a year is, we don't know. Mr. Ballin Collection is sponsored by BetterHelp. I am very grateful for my life. You know, I married my college sweetheart. We've been together 13 years. We have three kids together. I love my job. You know, my life is pretty good. But what I've learned about mental health is that it doesn't matter what you have. It matters how you feel. And even though on paper I feel like my life is perfect, The reality is, I deal with bouts of anxiety and depression all the time, even when there's no outward sign that I'm dealing with those things. But luckily, I do see a therapist, and that's the reason I'm able to get out of those ruts. You know, in the past, if I had not been seeing a therapist, when I would spiral, I would just keep it all in. But the therapist allows you to get it out, and that's what allows you to heal and move on. So, if you're thinking of giving therapy a shot, consider BetterHelp. It is a highly reviewed online therapy platform, which means you can get the help you need right from the comfort of your own home. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire online, and then you'll get matched with a licensed therapist, usually within 48 hours. And it's free to switch therapists at any time. So if you're struggling, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MrBallinPod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Mr. Ball and Pod. Policy Genius is the country's leading online insurance marketplace. It saves you time and money so you can provide your family a financial safety net starting today. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. PolicyGenius helps you compare your options from top companies, and their team of licensed experts is on hand to help talk you through it. Easily compare quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. Your current life insurance policy you have with your employer may not offer enough protection for your family's needs. And even worse, it may not come with you if you leave that job. PolicyGenius gives you unbiased advice from a team of experts 
They have no incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Our next and final story is called The Capitol Theater Haunting. In 2006, Dave Murphy had just become a police officer in Salt Lake City, Utah. His first role was as a protective service officer, which meant he'd be in charge of physical security in a number of the county facilities. Dave's first facility was the Capital City Theater, which is a landmark inside of Salt Lake City. It's been around since the early 1900s. It's this beautiful, grand theater. So in early August, Dave reports to the Capital City Theater for his first day on the job, and he meets his partner, an officer by the name of Morgan Matthews. He gets there on this first day, and right away, Dave would say that Morgan was just strictly business. The first place that Morgan takes Dave is the control room, which sits on the first floor of the theater. The theater had three floors, and then it also had a basement as well. So the control room was on that first floor. Inside of the control room were all of these security monitors because there was all these cameras set up inside of the theater. The cameras weren't great though. You pretty much could only tell what was in frame if there was a light on, and most of the time at night, especially, lights were off. Once they were done looking at the control room, Morgan says to Dave, now we're gonna go do our rounds. This is something we do every time you get to the theater, you do a security round and make sure everything's locked, all the lights are off. Before you come back to the control room, you'll do that at the beginning of your shift and at the end of your shift. Morgan brings Dave downstairs and it's the first time Dave is seeing the basement and he's shocked by how big it is. It is this massive hallway that stretches way down. In the middle of the hall is a piano that's just sitting out in the middle and the lighting's not good down there. This is a very old theater. You know, everything in the building was pretty old. And Dave remembers thinking that he was immediately creeped out by this scene, this long hallway with all these doors and this piano right in the middle of the hallway. And he's thinking to himself, I don't want to spend much time down here. This is so creepy. But they go down the hall, they check all the doors, they make their way up to the, the main floor, the second floor, the third floor, everything gets checked. And so after they do this security round, Dave and Morgan go back to the control room and Dave is anticipating getting to know Morgan a little bit. This is their first night. They're going to be working together a lot. And Dave would say that Morgan just seemed really cold and just did not want to talk to Dave very much. And as soon as their shift was almost over, Morgan was very eager to just knock out the security rounds and just get out of that building. At the end of that night, Dave remembers thinking that there's just something off about Morgan's behavior. It seemed like Morgan really didn't like being in the theater. And it would turn out that he was onto something because Morgan didn't like being in that building. But it would take him a while to share with Dave why. Over the next couple of days, Morgan and Dave would do their security rounds together because Dave's in training, Morgan's teaching him. But on August 9th, which was two days after Dave's first day on the job, Morgan was confident that Dave knew how to secure the whole building. And so at the end of the night, he tells Dave, why don't you do the security rounds yourself? Dave feels very confident that he knows how to do it. He goes down into the basement, makes sure all the doors are shut and locked, that the lights are off finishes the basement, goes up to the first floor where the control room is and checks all the rooms on that floor. He goes into the main auditorium space. He's checking all the different nooks and crannies to make sure there's nobody hiding in there. He goes up to the second floor. He checks all the different rooms up there and the balcony makes his way up to the third floor where there's all the offices of staff that work at the theater. At the end of the search, the last room he would check was the rehearsal room. 
And it was the only room where there was no door to it. So you'd poke your head in, kind of look around, make sure no one was in there, and then you would leave, and that's the end of your check. So Dave gets to the rehearsal room, he flips the light on, and he looks inside, doesn't see anybody, is satisfied that no one's in there, turns the light off, and as he's about to turn back into the hallway, he hears a door slam with tremendous force right across the hallway from where he was, and it was the bathroom door. And his first reaction is someone just ran out of the bathroom. Someone who had snuck into the building must have run out of the bathroom and they're making a break for it to get out of the theater before I catch them. And so he instinctively picks up his radio and he calls to Morgan and says, someone's on the third floor. But when Morgan looks at the camera, he doesn't see anybody. At this point, Dave's drawn his weapon. You know, and he's looking down the hall, he doesn't see anybody. And as he's waiting for Morgan to come upstairs to back him up so they can go look for this person that's just ran down the hall, he realizes two things. One, just because he heard the door slam doesn't mean they left and slammed it. They could be in the bathroom. And so he's thinking to himself, someone could be in the bathroom right now. Maybe that's why we didn't see him on the camera. And then the second thing he thought of is that door, the bathroom door, can't slam. It's got this huge hydraulic hinge to it. It can't slam. So his gun is drawn and he's aiming it at the bathroom door right as Morgan comes up on his right. Morgan draws his pistol. He's got it on the door as well. And they make entry into the bathroom. They clear all the different spaces in the bathroom and no one's in there. And there's no way to get out of there. Morgan and Dave are like, okay, well, they must not have come in here. They must have run out of the bathroom. They're somewhere in the theater. And so they decide they're going to search the entire building and find this person that clearly was just in the bathroom. And that's how they slammed the door. We're not going to worry about how they slammed the door with the hydraulic hinge. We just know it was slammed somehow. So they leave the bathroom, guns still drawn, and they start making their way down the hall. They're checking all the doors, everything is locked. When they start making their way downstairs to the second floor, Dave recognizes through the door, because there's a door leading onto the second floor, he can see that the lights are on and he had turned them off. And so as they're walking down the stairs, he says to Morgan, hey, did you turn the lights on on the second floor? And Morgan's like, no. And so they think that whoever was here, whoever was in the bathroom is on the second floor. They must've turned the lights on. They go into the second floor and not only are the lights on, but all the doors on the second floor had been opened. They search the entire second floor. They search every single room. No one's on the second floor. They turn off the lights, they shut all the doors, everything's locked. When they went down to the first floor, everything was the way it should have been, locked, lights off, nothing down there. And they go down to the basement. And even though it was creepy being down there because they've now searched the whole building and they're anticipating coming in contact with whoever is here, assuming they haven't left the building yet and there's no one down there. They decided to review the footage from the third floor to see if they could pick up someone running in the hall around the time that that door slammed. But the camera was not trained on the bathroom door. So you just have this view down the hall. You can't see the bathroom specifically, not to mention the hallway is dark and the cameras are terrible without light. And so all they're able to see is the light go on in the rehearsal room while Dave is doing his last check in there. The lights turn off because Dave's about to turn around. And then after that, you just hear this massive slam of this door, but you can't see what happened. So they don't know what to make of it. They're both very much on edge that someone might still be in the building. And so they do another sweep of the building and no one's there. And so they decide to just chalk it up and say, we were hearing things and seeing things. I'm sure it's fine. Let's just get out of here. And they leave. A couple of days later, on August 11th, Morgan is working alone. Dave wasn't coming in that day, so Morgan's alone in the theater doing a shift. And at some point in the night, as he's sitting in the control room, he thinks he hears whispering in the hall right behind him. And so after the experience he had with Dave a couple nights ago, he's on edge. So he draws his pistol right away. 
And so he goes out into the hallway and immediately when he steps into the hall, the whispering seems to go farther and farther away from him down the hall. So he gets out there, he's looking around, he can't see anything. He makes his way down the hallway towards the stairs that go down into the basement or if he wanted to go up to the second floor. And when he gets to the top of the stairwell, he's you know, gun drawn, looking down, looking up. He hears what sounds like coughing coming from the basement. And at this point, Morgan said that he was actually pretty scared. I mean, imagine being alone in this theater. Just a couple of days earlier, you've had this weird experience with slamming doors and doors being opened and lights going on that somebody else, another police officer witnessed with you. You're alone in this theater and you're hearing coughing coming from the basement after hearing voices behind you. That's pretty terrifying. So he very slowly starts going down the stairwell. He's getting ready to clear the corner. And just as he does, the coughing stops. He turns the lights on and he looks down the hall and there's nothing there. He starts making his way down the hall. He's checking every door, making sure it's locked, you know, making sure that everything is secure. And he gets all the way down the hall. And as he's almost done checking the basement, he smells smoke and it's coming from a door right next to him. And so he unlocks that door and he goes in and there's no fire, but all he can smell is smoke. So he turns the light on, he's looking around, there's no fire. He's convinced that somewhere down in the basement, there's a fire. He goes to every single room and he keeps checking and there's nothing. And then at some point the smoke smell dissipates. He checks every space in the theater to look for a fire and there's no fire. He's wondering if he should call the fire department, but he's thinking, what would I tell them? There's no fire. And so he ultimately, after checking three, four times and being very confident there wasn't a fire, he just says, okay, no fire. I guess I was just smelling things. A few weeks later on September 4th, Dave has just arrived at the theater. He's there a little bit early. Their shift started at 5 p.m. He was there at about 4.30. And when he walked into the building, he sees that there are three staff members sitting at the front desk talking to each other. And as he walks past, one of them is talking about ghosts inside of the theater. And it immediately piques his interest. And so he walked over to the guy talking about ghosts and he introduced himself. And it turned out that this guy was a man named Blair Fuller, who was a senior accountant at the theater. And so Dave asked Blair, what are you talking about with ghosts in the theater? Because I provide physical security here and I've seen some strange things here. I just love to hear what you have to say about it. So they head up to the third floor where Blair's office was and they sit down and Blair says, okay, I got a doozy for you. This happened to me a couple of years ago. I was actually in this office. It was about nine, 10 o'clock at night. I was doing some work and I heard the elevator kick on. Now the elevator was right outside of his office and anytime it was on, the engine was really loud. It was really obvious if, if the elevator was moving around. And so he's doing his accounting work and he hears that, that engine kick on. He doesn't think much of it, but then it clicks that he's the only one in the building. And so he kind of looks out the glass window of his office. He had a, a closed door office with two windows looking out into the, the foyer where there's this elevator and he looks out and he can see that the little lights above the elevator showing what floor it's on have lit up and it's going up. So the elevator was in the basement and now it's in the first floor, the second floor, third floor. The door's open and there's no one there. And at this point, Blair says that he wasn't concerned. He figured, okay, maybe there's some maintenance, maybe it's scheduled to do that, who knows? But after a little while, the alarm goes off in the elevator to signify that something is obstructing the door from shutting. And he's like, there's nothing obstructing the door. Why isn't it shutting? And so he leaves his office and he kind of walks over to the elevator and he walks into the elevator. And he said immediately he felt this massive drop in temperature inside of the elevator. And as he's standing there, he turns around. Now he's looking back towards his office inside of the elevator. The doors start to shut. And for whatever reason, he said, I didn't get off. I just decided I'm going to ride this elevator. The basement button lights up as if someone had pressed basement. 
and they start going down. And he's sitting there thinking, what in the world is going on? It was just on an alarm because the door wasn't shutting. And then miraculously, when I go inside of it, it suddenly works again and it's going to the basement. So he goes to the basement, the door opens, no one there. He steps out and Blair says that it took all of his courage to yell out, hey, is anyone down here? And as soon as he did and he didn't hear a response, he said he didn't want to make any more sound. The elevator sat in the middle of the hall in the basement. It's that huge hall with that piano sitting right in the middle. The lights are off and he pokes his head down one way. There's nothing down there. He sees the piano barely from the light of the elevator and he looks down the other way. There's no one there. And at this point, he's just so spooked. He just gets back in the elevator and he hits floor three, floor three, floor three. And he's hitting like door closed, door closed, door closed. The door closes and he goes back up to his, his office. He goes into his office and he shuts the door and he sits down and he's thinking like, what was that? Why did that just happen? I, I gotta find out if they're running maintenance or something. And as he's sitting in his chair, thinking about this strange experience, he hears what sounds like banging sounds coming from outside of his office in that foyer near the elevator. He just goes to his door and he opens it up and he pokes his head into the foyer and he looks to the side and there's this big filing cabinet and all of the cabinets are out. They've all been pulled out. He certainly didn't do this. And it was as if someone was one by one pushing each of them shut, these big heavy cabinets. And he's watching as one by one, these things are slamming shut, one by one until the whole thing is shut. And so he goes over and he's like trying to disprove what he just saw, that he can open up a drawer and that it will shut on its own. But none of them shut on their own. You have to shut it. Something has to shut it for it to shut. And so he packed up for the day and left and did not work another night shift at the theater. Later that night, Dave would share Blair's story with Morgan. He wasn't really sure how Morgan was gonna react, but Morgan actually would open up. And he would say, you know, before you started working here, I always felt like I was being watched when I was here. And then we had that experience, obviously, where the lights are coming on and you heard that banging from that bathroom door. And then just a few days ago, I heard voices coming from the hall and I heard someone coughing in the basement and I smelled smoke and, and there was no one there. And so they start going back and forth, exchanging stories of just how uncomfortable this place made them feel. And so they're wondering what they should do about this. And Dave has this idea. He's like, my best friend, I'll invite him to come over here one night and we'll tell him that we're giving him a tour of the building and we'll just see what he says. We'll see if he reacts to anything here, who knows? You know, maybe something strange will happen and then we'll have another person validate it. Morgan thinks that's a good idea. And so Dave reaches out to his best friend, Greg. Greg would say that he was a little bit surprised to be getting this offer to come take a tour of the theater, but he was interested and since Dave was asking, he figured he would oblige him. And so Greg agrees to come to the theater and take a tour. So the next day, Dave and Morgan are at the theater and Greg shows up. And so they start this tour, they go in the main auditorium, they're looking around and then they make their way into the basement. Morgan turns on the light and Morgan and Dave instantly see a little ways down the hall on the left, one of the doors has been opened. And so Dave and Morgan push Greg out of the way. They draw their pistols and they're aimed at the open door. And so Greg just stays behind them as Morgan and Dave make their way down to this open door. And when they get right outside the door and they're about to push it open to go inside, the door slams shut right in front of Greg and Dave and Morgan. And they all are looking at each other like, what's going on? But before they can do anything, the door handle starts rattling really aggressively. After the rattling stops, Dave and Morgan look at each other and they nod their head like, we gotta go in there. Greg is scared about being out in the hall alone. And so he just follows them in. And so the three of them go into this room, Dave and Morgan are, you know, pistols drawn. It's a small room. There's no one in there. Light switch on, no one in there. 
Greg suddenly gasps and he points to the corner and he says, someone's sitting in the corner. And Dave and Morgan immediately train their guns on what's in the corner, but no one's there. And Greg's like, I, I just saw someone sitting in the corner. It looked like he had a hood on, he had like a sweatshirt on, I don't know, but he was right there. And so Dave and Morgan, they're freaked out because they brought Greg here on some level to disprove the strangeness. And now the three of them have seen a door slam that shouldn't have been open in the first place. Greg's claiming to have seen a figure sitting in the corner. This scared the crap out of all three of them. They quickly left, locked, shut off the lights, went upstairs. Greg's like, I'm out of here. Greg leaves. And Dave and Morgan are like, now what? So at this point, all the strangeness that was happening in the theater was getting reported, but it was being reported in a way that Dave and Morgan didn't seem like they were referencing something haunted, but rather someone was breaking in. Ultimately, the county installed new cameras inside of the theater. These updated cameras had infrared technology, which allowed them to see better when the lights were off. They were hoping that this would allow them to catch whoever was breaking in practically every time Dave and Morgan are on shift. So on the day that it was installed, September 15th, Morgan is working there alone. And he's sitting in the control room looking at the different cameras and he's kind of playing around with the different screens and seeing what each of the cameras can do. And at some point, something catches his eye in one of the screens. In the main auditorium, it appeared like someone might be sitting in one of the seats, but the camera was zoomed back enough that he couldn't get a clear picture. And he didn't know what was normal in any of these cameras because this is the first time he's looking at any of these screens. And so he's looking at the camera really closely and he thinks he sees someone, he can't really tell, that has a hood on or a shroud on that's just sitting in the middle of the theater. And he can see clear as day a set of eyes. And before Morgan has a chance to do it, it just starts raising into the ceiling and disappears. Morgan didn't even check to see what it was. He was done. He literally quit that day. That was his last day at the theater. A couple of weeks after Morgan has quit and Dave is working alone at the theater, he's in the control room, and all of a sudden he hears a piano playing. And there's only one piano in the entire theater, and it's sitting in the basement. It's his job to protect this place, so he knows he has to go down and check because it could be some hooligan in the building somewhere. So he leaves the control room, and as he starts walking over to the stairs with his gun drawn, the music is getting louder and louder, the piano is getting louder and louder and louder. He makes his way down the steps, and as he's about to turn the corner, he hears the, the guard that, that protects the keys on the piano slam shut, and the piano stops. Then he turns around the corner and he looks, and there's no one down there. He flips on the light, no one's in the hall. He knows he's not going to find anyone down here. It's this entity that's causing all this mayhem inside of the theater. Dave's seen enough. He's done. He's done with this theater and he goes right back upstairs. He goes in the control room, locks it, stays there till the end of his shift, and then he is out. And the next day, he goes to his sergeant and he says, you can't ever put me back inside that theater or I will quit. And so sure enough, he was transferred. Over the next two months, they didn't have anyone who could do full-time security at the theater. So different random officers would be there for a couple hours, a couple of days a week until November 26th. They found another officer, a, a veteran police officer named Josh Thomas, who was going to be working at the theater full time. On November 26th, the first night that Josh Thomas was going to be there, he didn't have anyone to turn over with. So he was just alone at the theater. And it just so happens that Dave is in a patrol car near the theater. And when at some point in the night, Josh comes over the radio and says, hey, I need backup right now. Someone has broken into the theater. Dave knows that it's probably not someone breaking in. He knows what's going on inside that theater. He was the closest to it. And even though he did not want to go, he felt like it was his responsibility to go to that theater and be Josh's backup. 
And if it was what Dave thought it would be, this entity in the theater, that he would be able to explain to him what he had seen before he ultimately decided never to go back. And when Dave gets to the theater, there's this back door that they would go into and he sees Josh is standing just outside the theater. And Dave would say that Josh's eyes were, you know, like saucers. He looked terrified. And so Dave has an inkling of what's going on. And he goes over to Josh and he's like, what's going on? Is someone still in there? He said that he had been doing security rounds and he had heard what sounded like voices when he was in the basement. And he didn't think much of it. He checked all the rooms, everything was shut. And when he made his way up to the third floor, he saw that the elevator had kicked on. It was in the basement and suddenly the light was on and it was roaring up to the third floor. And when the elevator opened up, there was no one there. And he's standing there looking at it and he looks inside, there's no one there. And then the alarm goes off. That's when he called in for backup. Dave says, look, let's just go search the building. We'll do it together. They clear the whole theater, no one's there. And before Dave leaves, they go into the main auditorium where the stage is and they're just standing on the stage chatting with each other. And Dave, his back is to where the audience would be. And Josh is facing Dave, facing towards the seats. Josh just suddenly stopped. Mid-sentence, he's just frozen and looking just beyond Dave's shoulder. And Dave goes, what? And Josh goes, there's something behind you. Dave slowly turns around, and as soon as he does, he can tell immediately what Josh is looking at. Standing in the very back of the theater away from them is a man standing in the corner with its hands by its sides. Its back is to them, and it's looking down with a hood over its head. Dave turns his whole body around to look at this thing right as this thing turns around real quick and looks directly at them. It has these deep, dark, sunken eyes, and its face looks like it had been very badly burned, like it was black and charred. And it's looking at them before it just turns and runs out the back of the theater. Josh believed that that was an intruder. Dave was fairly certain that that was just another example of this entity that haunts the theater. But they would search the building and they could never find that cloaked figure again. And that was when Dave sat Josh down in the control room and he filled him in on why Morgan had quit and why he ultimately had quit. And he also told him the story from Blair. So Josh is like, great, I'm glad I work here now. This was the last time that Dave would go to the theater, but Dave would do some additional digging on the history of the theater. It would turn out that in the 40s, there was this horrible fire and a man had been trapped in the basement when the fire had erupted and he had died inside of the theater. And so Dave would share this information with Morgan and with Josh and the three of them all believed that what they were witnessing was the ghost of that man who died in that fire. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Ballin podcast. If you got something out of this episode and you haven't done this already, please put the Amazon Music follow button's feet in cement and throw them in the ocean. This podcast airs every Monday and Thursday morning, but in the meantime, you can always watch one of the hundreds of stories we have posted on our main YouTube channel, which is just called Mr. Ballin. We have a registered 501c3 charitable organization called the Mr. Ballin Foundation that honors and supports victims of violent crime as well as their families. Monthly donors to the Mr. Ballin Foundation Honor Them Society will receive free gifts and exclusive invites to special live events. Go to mrballin.foundation and click Get Involved to join the Honor Them Society today. If you want to get in touch with me, please follow me on any major social media platform and then send me a direct message. My username is just at Mr. Ballin, and I really do read the majority of my DMs. Lastly, we have some really cool merchandise, so head on over to shopmrballin.com to have a look. So that's going to do it. I really appreciate your support. Until next time, 
See ya. Hey, Prime members, you can binge eight new episodes of the Mr. Ballin podcast one month early and all episodes ad free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. And before you go, please tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hey, listeners, it's me, Mr. Ballin. I appreciate you all being fans of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious, but let's be honest, sometimes you need a bit of humor to go alongside true crime. That's where the Morbid Podcast comes in. It's a lighthearted nightmare over there. Hosted by Elena, an autopsy technician, and Ash, a hairstylist, at its core, Morbid is a true crime, creepy history, and all things spooky podcast. But when Ash and Elena get together and tell stories, they do so in a way that not only shows the depth and detail of their research, but each episode also includes a touch of humor, a dash of sarcasm, and is garnished with just a little bit of cursing. Follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Morbid early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.